Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Let's talk about some serious Ds today, like droopy dog and death and dying, with one of my favorite double H's anywhere. This is episode number 114. Howdy doody, you groovy listener, you. I am so tempted to just get right into this episode. It's so good. So good. Uh, Take you wonder by wonder, but I have some due diligence to do first, like saying how sweet it is to be loved by you, assuming you are one of the generous patrons who supports this show or have written a recent iTunes review. I feel a lot of love from that. Uh, New reviews and patrons have been lagging a little bit lately. If you want to do something about that, you can always go to joelzeslowski.com slash support. Maybe you've been listening for a while. You want to say thanks in your own special way. Just give me a reason. Any little reason to tell you, sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy, and I'm on it like a bonnet. As birthday month approaches for me again, it's November 28th, 2016, as I publish this episode, and my own little bonus gratitude month of December is about to roll around, one in which my mom, my dad, my brother, my wife, and some great friends, they all have birthdays in December. I am filled once again with early holiday cheer, although let me be honest, I, <laughs> I'm always filled with cheer, holidays or no holidays, it's not a prerequisite. Now, one of the reasons it's so easy for me to smile and laugh and just be light so frequently is because I get to bring you fascinating chats with people like my friend and guest for this episode, Humaira Hamid. Uh, despite the occasional little electronic buzz coming from Humaira's audio and this being my longest episode to date, I have a good feeling this conversation will be better remembered and more impactful than a typical podcast episode. True story. I was actually tempted to keep going in the conversation despite ending it at about 10.30 p.m. my time because it was just that good. The conversation, depending on who you are, may take a little while to really heat up, but goodness, it is worth listening to the whole thing through, maybe even twice. Uh, And when you listen through to the end, you get to learn about two gifts that Humaira has for you just because she is a super woman. One is called Whistle It Like Disney Birds Might, song request, and the other is a way to have a one-on-one conversation with Humaira, good for the first eight people who are confident enough to engage with her, I have to say, sometimes overpowering insight and challenging questions. Really, I'm just stoked to have you hear snippets of her immigrant story and her background as someone who is, as she describes, resource-poor and support-rich. You're going to discover how to invite yourself to the best events in town, what the heck indoor cat time and teddy bear handstands are, why enoughness might be better for you than minimalism, essentialism, or other more familiar isms, how to blend equal parts squishy heart woo-woo and hard data in your life, and my favorite part, 
a few tangents in CCODD, curious conversations on death and dying, like becoming death literate. There's no need to wait any longer. We just got to get into it. Here we go. Have you ever met someone and in about two minutes just naturally thought, you're fascinating? Well, I certainly have, and one of those people is my friend and guest for this episode, Humaira Hamid. She describes herself as a life-pondering practical philosopher, relentlessly curious about the human condition and exploring the question, how did things come to be this way? In her constant pursuit of making sense of everything around her, she's been known to create performances, spoken pieces, and facilitate learning experiences for others in lecture format, workshops, seminars, and coaching. She enjoys exploring themes like the art of relating, conflict resolution, bioethics, love and compassion, death and dying, equality and justice, and just some of life's absurdities. Now, since I'm not as eloquent as Humaira is, I normally just describe her as awesome. Welcome to Smart and Simple Matters, my slightly intimidating and wonderfully stimulating friend. (laughs) Thank you, Joel, for that very kind. I find bios so weird and hearing somebody voice that back to me um, is such an interesting experience. I'm so honored that you'd have me on the podcast today. Well, I jewelified it a little bit. I like to come up with a little bit of panache, give it a little pizzazz <laughs> so it doesn't come <laughs> off as Umaira Hamid is amazing and I'm Droopy Dog telling you and here's why. <laughs> That's delightful. Okay, well, let us start a conversation where I normally start a Smart and Simple Matters conversation. It's something I call disease of awesomeness. Awfully appropriate for you especially. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. So can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe one, two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on who you are right now? Uh, Formative experiences. I know I'm not the only person and far from it that has had this experience. Uh, My family immigrated to Canada when I was seven years old. We started and landed in Montreal, Quebec lived there for about six months, shifted over to Winnipeg, lived there through Winterpeg and through the hottest summer, apparently that was on record, and then ended up landing on the West Coast where I'm now based in British Columbia um, in what's known as Vancouver, which is the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. And being brought up by my mother uh, as a single parent on welfare um, with two siblings and my being the middle child, I would say, all of those different contexts um, really made up the fabric of who I now see myself to be and how I operate in the world. Part of that being I love books. I've always loved the library. And so having resource constraints and growing up in that and needing to be a little bit more creative in how I entertain myself and spent time and valued different things I think very much carries over in the work that I do now because I'm always looking for creative ways to express, which has grown into my artistry in different ways and in my body of work. Um, But I would say immigrating and uh, being in a a resource poor but support rich as far as family was concerned um, in some ways for sure are the two kind of biggest formative pieces that make me who I am today. So creative ways to express. 
uh, and since you have uh, resourcefulness about you, can you think of something um, going back a bit in your youth where you just did not have the physical material means to procure something, but whether it was through your friends, your family, through some kind of outreach that you did, you made something super cool happen that you thought, how, how did I, how did I end up doing this? Uh, yes. And it, it's not that far back in my youth. It was actually right after high school. And I, I started to understand and see a little bit more of the um, entrepreneurship startup, personal development, professional development, um, art of speaking and communicating type of events that are hosted in Vancouver. It being kind of a, a world-class city, it draws many incredible events that are hosted here, um, as well as many people that live and work here. Um, and I, I didn't have the budget to go to these events as a guest, as an attendee, as a registrant. What I did have um, and I knew in some way that it was really valuable was um, my effective project management skills, um, event production, and I would just volunteer my time um, to see if there was any way before, during, or after that event I'd be able to add value in different ways. Um, and in, in return, I, I got the experience of those events but the cool part about it for me that I didn't realize until afterwards was I actually love this experience more than if I had just gone and engaged as an attendee um, because I got to see the fabric of it. I got to connect with different folks in a more, what for me is a more meaningful way, which is when we do work together and create something together. And so being able to lift the veil a little bit and be behind the scenes and, um, celebrate and vent and learn a lot about what was going behind creating something. I think that pull the curtain back, lift the veil piece of it was one of the most amazing things that I kind of stepped back and was like, how was it that I was invited into those spaces? Um, well, it sounded so, like you invited yourself a little bit. What did you offer I, up? Uh, because if you pitch somebody and you're like, hey, let me co-create this thing with you, somebody might say, well, can I see what your credentials are or explain a little bit more? I know you said you have project management skills, event production skills. I have those as well. They're incredible to offer somebody else who is running, organizing an event. Is that what you offered up to assist with some of the logistical operational things or was it something else more creative in nature? Not that those things no. are creative. <laughs> they, yeah they're they're creative in a specific way absolutely um it, it was certainly that uh, some of them were um posted volunteer positions or similar to that I said great hands up here are the types of workshops events etc that I've been involved with or created on my own before so I had a little bit of a, a portfolio and a repertoire to fall back on um and aside from that sometimes it was I would come in as a greeter volunteer um, which is a super important role, I think, for any event because it really sets the tone of this is what this might be like. Um, so for any any person that just thinks, oh, I'm just a greeter volunteer, please know out there that you're so, so critical to building an experience. Um, and so one of the first events that I had put my hand up for was to be, you know, the 7 a.m. greeting folks and, and getting them checked in through registration. And because I had all of my other 
project management, event management, um, behind the scenes, speaker logistics and liaison experience in different capacities. And the rest kind of grew in learning um, as I was doing them. I would always just see what else people needed. And if somebody seemed stressed out, I would just make myself available, making sure I was doing whatever I needed to do. And also seeing like, do you need anything else? Can I, can I offer any other support? And inevitably something always comes up and it's like, great. And so I, I almost became that the person that just kind of pops up and is capable and calm in the situation because I'm not carrying the same uh, knowledge as the event organizers. I've come in day of, I'm feeling rested. I'm feeling really present in it without knowing what things are supposed to happen. Um, And so when somebody says, can you just make this happen? I am so singularly dropped into that and I'm like done and they can consider it done. And then I'm, I'm able to pull that off if I can, if not, I tell them right off the bat or say, you know, can I get a little bit more direction? Um, But being able to do that, increase my capacity. And then in future events, I then said, FYI, I can also do this. So if you need any help leading up to it, especially around really logistical time crunch pieces like registration Hmm. and things like that, where there might be bottlenecks and really impact the experience of a guest. I just started really embedding myself in those kinds of places and saying, I'm quite good at this. I've done it before. If I can be of service here, let me know. And often um, the events that I was connecting with were small team run, professional and or volunteer. And so being able to have kind of that breath of fresh air capacity when I've been an event organizer, I know what a saving grace that is. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be that person for somebody else. And, and I did that fairly often. That's great. And I always challenge people too. I know you mentioned it like I'm just a welcomer or just a greeter. No, you're not. Or when somebody says, well, I only had six people come to my gathering. And I'm thinking, six people? Think about the ripple effect that that could have. Whenever I'm involved in an event, a gathering, uh, a conference, whatever it is, and I hear people use the words just or only, referencing to their role or to how many people are there, I, I almost always have to be like, hold on, time out, time out. What, what we're doing here is important. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And it doesn't matter how many people are here. Yes, there are certain kinds of activities where you need a certain number of people for uh, an energy level or to facilitate it properly. But so many times I see so many people caught up in a, oh, I'm just a this. No, you're amazing. Do your amazing thing, even if it's just this teeny little niche thing. So I'm glad that you mentioned that as well. Uh, one thing that I've, I'm hearing so far is taking um, a constraint, which is either the connections that you have or uh, the financial resources and not having those, and just simply inviting yourself in a good way into somebody else's thing and co-creating with them. What about mm. these days? Are there some kind of constraints that you feel like you have and you've basically turned that constraint into a strength as a result of how you frame it to somebody else? That is a good question. And I I want to highlight something you just said that really lands with me, which is invite yourself in a good way. And that being in a good way when you're inviting yourself into a space, into a conversation, into an event, um, that authenticity and the genuine 
um, where if somebody isn't doing that, you can read that really quickly. Um, thank you for saying that specifically, because I think that's really important. As for the question around right now, I think one of my biggest constraints right now is my energy and my time and what I'm choosing to devote myself to. And it ties into, we've had this conversation, you and I, Joel, around um, essentialism and choosing what it is that we do and when and how. And I think the way around that for me has really been to recognize that I am doing right now what I need to. I have two little post-its um, that I see often. And one is, it's not about where is this going? This is it. And that's an invitation for me to come back to, there are all of these uh, ideas and possibilities and amazing collaborations that might be and being able to play within that constraint of how many hours do I have in a day? How much energy do I have where I can do really good work before I start to empty my cup a little bit too much and get to a place where I can't show up well? And so I think the way that I've been able to re-engage with that is I have now taken my grand vision for my body of work. And if I make it that long, um, I know that this is a very, very long game. So I'm talking 60, 70, 80 year old me. And that allows me to take the pressure off of everything needs to happen right now and really helps me to curb my uh, anxieties, which can creep into a little bit with being really invested in my work and wanting to do right by people and doing work um, in a good way and not taking it over that fine line to um, feeding anxiety or feeding that kind of hamster wheel of it's not enough, it's not good enough, it's not fast enough, it's not uh, thoughtful enough, it's not engaging enough, inclusive enough. And so being able to take a step back um, and really looking at what is a kind way to recognize my energy. Yeah, what is a kind way to recognize your energy? How do you have that kind of self-love, self-care where you're ambitious? I could tell from the first time that I talked to you, but not in a in a power-hungry or money-hungry kind of way. The good kind of ambition where you want to do good, you want to be of service, but you have standards, you have goals, and you know that there are big things that you can do. How do you stay kind to yourself while pushing yourself at the same time? Because that's a tension that I am not very good at resolving. Mm, you and I both, my friend. Uh, and one of the ways is, is really to have folks around me that will mirror that to me. And I, I have, <laughs> for my part, I've learned how to listen a lot more than I think I ever have before. And by that, I mean, when, when people say certain things to us, um, I know in my practice and in my life, somebody would say something and I would kind of half hear it somehow half listen and and or just kind of put it in my drawer for later, but not really integrate what that reflects about what they're seeing for me. So, you know, you did a great job there or you look a little tired or you've been working a lot lately. Those are indicators that other people are noticing even when I'm out of tune with myself and to say, okay, if somebody's saying 
you know, I've seen you at like eight different events this week. You must really be running. For me to be able to tap back and say, yes, but it's the kind of running that I feel really resourced for. And I could do this for another, you know, two, three days. And then I know that I need to give myself a fair, what I call indoor cat time and to really <laughs> introvert and, and regain that energy. Indoor that cat time? Yes. I, uh, I shared this with a, with a, a new delightful friend of mine um, who is doing some incredible work around uh, innovation in the Vancouver space. And she was like, what is indoor cat time? And that is legitimately when I sit in the raft that is my bed and, and or my couch or um, have a quiet dinner with my chosen family. And it really is about if I feel like I'm curled into a blanket, if I'm sitting in the dark doing nothing but you know being with my thoughts or listening to music with my eyes closed or reading a book or sitting on my couch wrapped in a blanket it's that um it's it's that cozy time <laughs> um that i i know you know well as well but it's that for me really feeds me if i've been out you know 14 hour days 12 hour days back to back um that now kind of drains me quite quickly. Whereas a few years ago, I was able to do that back to back for a couple of weeks in a row. So I also, one of the other things that I do for self-care is really, really, really stay honest with myself and try and, and peel back as much of my ego as possible. And it's such a ninja tricksy, like keeps diving back in there. But how much of an introvert or introverted tendencies of mine are now showing up versus how much of that spectrum was there before. I know myself um, to have been highly extroverted a few years ago. And so to update my schemas of this is now what is enough for me before it starts to get depleting. And that looks like less events in a week than I once used to be able to do. And only when I had that awareness after going overboard and recuperating and being like, how did I get here? Then it was to reflect back and say, okay, I said yes to one too many things. So next time intentionally planning my time forward and saying, I, if I have three, four, maybe five events in a week, I really, really need to get conscious of what else I say yes to. And if that will be energy draining, even if it's exciting or energy uh, giving for me. Mm-hmm. Indoor cat time. And I know in previous conversations we've had, you mentioned uh, this phrase, a teddy bear handstand moment in your life, which maybe we'll talk about that too. You got some good <laughs> ones. I, I'm known a bit uh, around certain circles as somebody with some some funky sayings that are uh, rather attached to me. And I know that just in the course of conversation, we're going to explore some more of those. I, I, just saying yes, saying no, letting go. These are all some things that I'm hearing already. And you mentioned essentialism. I would imagine in kind of the Greg McEwen style uh, version in this popular book. Uh, I know mm-hmm. minimalism, that's something that is important to you. You're associated with uh, the minimalists, and I believe you're the Vancouver host for uh, minimalist.org and for the folks in there. Actually, I, I've <laughs> seen you tweet a fair amount about minimalism, but it doesn't seem like it's in the context that I'm used to seeing it in. How how do you describe your ability to say yes or your ability to focus on 
people as opposed to things. How do you, do you have a, a simple way that you think about simple living or minimalism or essentialism or whatever kind of label or feeling is most important to you when it comes to just really paring down with sharp eyes and focusing on the things that intensely matter to you? Uh, I define it as enoughness. What is enough for me, for the people around me, and am I doing something because of FOMO, for example, that fear of missing out of, oh no, if I don't show up to this thing, or if I don't read this, this article or watch this video or, you know, get in on this documentary that I'm missing out. Um, I used to do that a lot more until quite recently. And it was because I didn't feel connected enough. And so when I started making that connection to myself a little bit more, I didn't need as much of that. And then it, it became easier for me to say yes or no to things in a more honest and truthful way, because it was more honest and truthful to me. And I, I think about this sometimes as far as I'm in a different stage in my life, for example, for the listeners that are out there, I'm sure there's all, all different stories, all different stages of transition, of building into a new community. And I had a very big spark of energy when I first shifted from, for example, being a full-time student to um, being a, a full-time employee and then doing other community engagement pieces. And for a while, it was just say yes to everything so that uh, potential and opportunity can be built. And when there was enough of that foundation and richness for me to be able to start filtering through and saying, this feels right for me, this is not a fit for me, until I tried those things, I wouldn't, I wouldn't confidently be able to say that that's not for me without having this twinge of like, oh, maybe, what if? And at this point, I think I've immersed myself in enough different places from to be honest, ODing on FOMO a little bit, overdosing on being at too many things in too many places and getting to a point of completely empty, no fuel left in the tank. And then sitting down with all of that and being like, what does this data now all have to tell me? So I'm I'm equal parts uh, squishy heart woo-woo, the way that my sister likes to say it, <laughs> and really hard numbers, data, Excel, you know, data-driven analysis-driven so being able to to both do hyper mode and then be able to reflect hyper mode, I think for me has been that loop. So there are so many different kind of frameworks and things out there in terms of self-reflection. Uh, I live my my entire existence essentially on Google Calendar. Google knows more about me than my own family or I do, to be honest. But being able to mine back on that data and say, where did I spend a lot of my time? I color code my, my calendars. And so I can really quickly switch back week by week or month by month and say, there's a lot of pink happening here, which is the color for um, what I call karma and connections. So anything where I feel like I've, I've given of my time or uh, a light green, which is more of my body of work or um, uh, an orange color, which is my self-care. And so if I see too many weeks in a row with very, very little pieces of self-care around, um, that's a, a good indicator for me as a visual learner and a feedback piece of, okay, here's some data that's also maybe informing what I'm feeling in my, in my body. 
and I need to switch something. What are the Does other that colors? The question? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I'm, what are the other colors? How many colors do you have? How many colors do I have? That's a great question. Um, I I have one for sleep actually, and I look back at one time where there was not enough sleep happening. Uh, how many colors do I actively use? I think there's about six or seven right now. Okay, so we've talked about pink and green and orange. What color is sleep? Sleep is a is a deep navy blue. Okay, and mm-hmm. then what are the other two or three that are missing? I, I'm I'm always just fascinated by the <laughs> the primary categories in which people chunk out their lives, which you've done mm-hmm. through your Google Calendar. I do the same thing too for the last five years or so. If it's happened in and it's lasted longer than about fifteen minutes. It's been put into my Google Calendar. Now, unlike you, I don't actually do anything actively, at least, with that information other than quarterly, I review what happened and then in the next 12 months, what's coming up so that I can be prepared because I'm an over planner and I like to be hyper organized. Um, but it sounds like you are actively mining that and, and either reflecting or changing the course of your future life. So before we get into any of that, I, yeah, what are the, what are the colors that are missing and what do they represent? Um, and I, I, I do have to put the disclaimer in. I think I err more on the side of your process than um, what it may sound like my process is. So my ambition is that it is more active and engaged. Um, and sometimes I do go a month or two or a quarter or whatever it is without having reviewed that. Um, I have specific slots in to be able to do those reviews um, as reminders to myself. And they are quarterly. I love and it. Ad hoc. Oh, gosh, I love it. Yeah. And then ad hoc if I need to, or if I, sometimes it's, it's me getting into the, uh, distracting phase of being on my phone. And then I, I think about what can I, if I'm going to be doing this anyways, and I'm not meditating or whatever else, is there something at least productive that I can be be doing and not watching a teacup pig, you know, prance around a lawn, which is also great. Mm -hmm. Um, then I end up doing that, that week review. So to your other question, um, one of, uh, one of them is called the Life Project, and it's purple. It's purple. Um, what ends up there is sometimes body of work, sometimes it's milestones, sometimes it's just things that excite me. And um, one question I've been pos- posing to folks a lot lately is, "What makes you giddy?" And so I would say the Life Project tends to get the things that make me giddy a little bit more. Um, it's it's used a lot more sparingly. Uh, the other one is uh, a golden yellow and it's special occasions. And those are things like birthdays of folks that I love and anniversaries. And um, the first time that something happened that I think this was really cool. Um, or my heart just says like, there was something really special about this. And so it won't be in community and events, which are all things at this point that are feeling more like they are special to me. Um, but it, you know, it's not a, a movie night with friends or a Petrochka event that I've gone to, but it's like, this is the kind of stuff that would make a scrapbook if I were a scrapbooker, which I'm not, <laughs> I may have given you a miscount. Those are, those are the ones those that are, the are ones. In okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I can't let you go without just asking you what's one thing that's making you giddy right now. I, w- I whistle like Disney birds. And telling people that and getting the reactions and the conversations that come from those is one of my favorite things right now. Whistling like Disney birds? 
Mm-hmm. Have we ever spoken about this? No. No. Okay. Uh, so for everyone, um, I like to say that I I'm able to whistle like Disney birds, i.e., that little vibrato that they get. Um, and so I take requests. There's uh, I should figure out what the URL is, but I have a little type form that anyone anywhere in the world can um, put in a song request. And it doesn't have to be a Disney song. And I'm in no way affiliated to Disney. I understand that they're very, very tight with their brand. Um, But if there's a song that you really enjoy that I know, I will whistle it. And I'll whistle it acapella, solo, acoustic, um, as I imagine Disney birds might. So if you have a song now or sometime in this podcast that you might want to hear whistled like Disney birds, I will give it a shot, my friend. Okay, there is definitely going to be a link to the show notes to your type form, which is just, uh, it's like Google Forms or SurveyMonkey or other types of things for people who don't know what that is. Um, that Just a quick form for you to submit something online. Yeah, yeah. With beautiful UX and design, like that user experience is, is why I, I'm a heavy user of the Google Forms because of the functionality. Love it. Um, and type form, just there's something about one thing at a time and the bubbles that pop up that, that really work for me. It is pretty. It is pretty. Mm-hmm. It's a little too minimal for me, which is strange because I spend most of my day and a lot of my days in super minimal spreadsheets and I love it that way. <laughs> colors are great in a Google calendar in a spreadsheet. Nuh-uh. No, don't give me any colors at all. Uh, that's just me personally. And I know some people that's blasphemy. What? I can't put colors in my spreadsheets. How else am I going to bother to open them up if I can't actually have some vibrant uh, personal Remind me never to pass you my budgeting spreadsheet. <laughs> it is full of colors. Got it. I will not ever ask to see that. Or if anything, I will just select all and make it all white before I open my eyes. I can actually do that with hotkeys on my keyboard before uh, I have to open my eyes. Yes, I know. I'm nerdy. And I love spreadsheets and hotkeys. <laughs> Okay, so we've been joking around about this thing and that and covering some pretty cool topics, but I cannot have a conversation with you without talking about... You mentioned before FOMO, fear of missing out, and how it's much less of a presence in your life right now than it used to be. I'm wondering about um, FODDA, which would be fear of death and dying. Not, Not actually a thing, from what I understand, at least not an acronym, but from a human perspective... For thousands of years, FODD, the fear of death and dying, has been perhaps the greatest fear, the fear upon which all other fears are based on. And Mm -hmm. I'm really excited. You and I have had some private conversations around death and dying. Um, And I just thought we'd start with what you unknowingly lodged in my head on the topic. We had a chat back at World Domination Summit this year. it's in Portland, Oregon. I've talked about it on previous shows. I'll link to it in the show notes because if people have an opportunity to go to WDS, wow, wow. You meet people like Umaira and you're like, oh, this is worth it just for that. But you said something to the effect when just we were talking about so many things come back to death and dying and there are so many layers on top of it. Uh, I think you mentioned addiction and sex and how they're intimately linked with death and dying. Um, what do you see? Let's just, there's so many places that we could go, but maybe just to start it off, what do you see from a layer perspective, these things that are sitting on top or below of death and dying, how would you peel back the onion to that, that central fear that drives so many people's lives? 
Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it, this goes back to my kind of ins- insatiable curiosity on the human condition, because a lot of folks are, are like, how do, you, how do you get to death and dying as a thing? And why, why are you talking about this? Um, and it is quite uncomfortable for people. And, and a lot of the time, I've been very driven by what is it that is taboo? What is it the things that we don't talk about? And why, why is that? How did things come to be that way that this is on the table, this is off, this is in frame, this is out? And all of those things that are liminal on the fringe, in the periphery, are the things that I find most fascinating. And so how I came to, to this death and dying thing, and and I find it its own organic, living, kind of pulsing thing, funny enough, living. Um, but it came from, my background was in uh, hyperactive, you know, high achieving student leader that came from a lot of some positive places and some fear-based places. And one of the things that I was doing a lot was around stress management, time management, um, productivity, and beating procrastination. I am a procrastinator to no end. Um, Finally is starting to shift after many, many, many years of of trying different things and um, what one of my teachers had called uh, passing it through my practice. So you learn something, a theory, a framework, uh, a formula, and then you, you pass it through your own habits and you're living through it and see what sticks, what doesn't, what feels genuine, what feels a little too contrived. And as many times as I do it, this is not going to be me. And in doing all of that and trying to find the skeleton key around, like, what is the key to, to stopping procrastination? Um, and now realizing I don't want to anymore because it's not as big of an issue. I've learned how to harness it and I've learned how to keep it at bay when I need to. That led me to um, that procrastination being everyday thrill-seeking. That's something that I wrote to myself in my notes from 2012. I remember this really clearly. And that feeling of I'm not feeling alive enough. And so I need to create conditions for this like adrenaline hit and rushing to a deadline and trying to submit something in the last five minutes. My body's as on guard as it is if I'm about to step off a plane and and skydive. And so if I'm not doing the things on a regular basis, exercising or whatever it is that gets my heart up, um, that, that makes me good kind of stressed, um, then I'm creating situations where that bad kind of stress still gives my body that same feedback. And so then I got into procrastination and other things as thrill-seeking, uh, thrill-seeking activities and that brought me into this entire layer of exploring addictions. And that's where, um, like you mentioned, whether it's an addiction to sex, money, consumerism, technology, uh, sugar, you name it, um, achievement. And I think achievement addiction is a big thing in our society overall. And I, I work with entrepreneurs every day. I work at an organization called Futurepreneur and we support young people that are starting off businesses. So how much of that is coming from, again, a place of excitement and love and curiosity and how much of it is coming from this place of not enoughness and driven by fear um, to, to then do these things or to distract from these things. And 
that layer of addictions and whether it's a societally acceptable format of that addiction. So great. Now I've gotten the top 30 under 30, or I've, I've spoken to X thousand number of people when you're talking about the event that two people come to and it's like, Oh, that's not enough. Um, all of that swirls around this. There's a societally accepted productive addictions. Um, and then there's the societally demonized or, um, perceived as negative addictions, which tend to be um, alcoholism, hard drugs, et cetera. Um, they all come from the same place. I don't care if you are taking a hit in a back alley or you're putting your thousandth pair of shoes in your closet. I think that there's something innately human that connects that all. And that's how I ended up getting to death and dying because addictions, the way I understand it and, um, one of the thought leaders around this is Dr. Gabor Mate, and he talks about addictions and the source of that. And it, addictions are understood as a way to either distract from or numb some sort of discomfort or pain or fear often. And then that ultimate fear, it's like, okay, well, what are we all afraid of? There are some people that are fearless about some things. Spiders will keep somebody running and somebody else is totally fine with it. Death and dying seemed to be that thing. It seemed to be kind of that skeleton key of what are the ties that bind us all? And not to say there are many people that are out there that have, have made peace with their process of death and or dying, end of life um, with their death and have kind of reconciled and made peace with, I've lived my life in a good way. If I'm to go to, if I am to go tomorrow, I'll go tomorrow. I've done the best I can. And it's sunk into that place of enoughness. Like there may always be ambitions or visions to do more um, or do differently. And if, you know, hit by the bus scenario tomorrow, that would be okay too. We'd be able to to, to live with that. Yeah. Um, so that, that's how I got into the, the death and dying space. And the other piece of it for me, I've, I've been having these conversations for about a year and a half now. And the hashtag is not F-O-D-D, but it's C-C-O-D-D, which is Curious Conversations on Death and Dying. And is it okay for us to have just curious conversations without somebody being like, are you okay? You know, have you been diagnosed with something? Or are you suicidal? Or whatever it is. But just being able to engage in a conversation to become a little bit more death literate and a little bit more comfortable with the concept of death and dying as a, as a ballpark space even. Um, and one of the things that underlies that for me is I see us living in a very death phobic culture. And I have lived a lot of my life when you talk about um, the things that frame who I am. Um, a part of that immigrant background is my family is originally from Bangladesh. And it is typically as um, a country as a culture and as the predominant um, religious and um, social context in that, uh, largely Islamic, um, a fair population of Hindu and Christian folks that populate the country, um, you engage with the idea of death and dying. You might see a funeral um, procession walking down a street depending on where you are. You have elderly folks that live in the community and live in extended homes. And so you see sickness and frailty and aging, which are all those tendrils that lead eventually to death and dying. 
And living in uh, the west coast of Canada in British Columbia, in the lower mainland, I was very uh, sheltered from all of that. And I live in a, in a small nuclear family. I haven't lost anybody. Um, no, I haven't had anybody that I know and I'm deeply connected to die. And I, I caught myself there with the loss vocabulary. Um, it's something that I'm trying to shift right now. Um, if folks are curious, I highly recommend Stephen Jenkinson's work. Uh, Grief Walker is the hour and a bit documentary, which is amazing. Um, but around this whole concept of death phobia, phobia being fear, and this fear of dying and it being so much so that it ties into um, this uh, insatiable need to be attractive and youthful all the time. It's one of the very real impacts that we feel on a regular basis. Um, a lot of the people that I'm connected to as young women and aging women, for example, feel this need to not walk out of the house without, you know, doing the hair and putting the makeup on. Um, how does this impact us on a regular basis? And where is the actual root that it's coming from? I just find everything from bullying to um, poverty alleviation to uh, body image issues, all of these really tangible issues that we're facing as a society all go back to an engagement or lack thereof with death and dying. So that's where I like to play. And it's very weird for a lot of people. My goodness. I have about eight things that I want to go back to. I, sure. I should have, uh, wow. Okay. Where to go, where to go. I would like to first know if I can't tell somebody, you know, that I lost a friend, they're dead now. Um, or that somebody has passed when, mm-hmm. I, when I use that word, which I don't, that in, implies that I believe that somebody has passed on to something else, something beyond mm-hmm. life. Me, I don't believe in that. So I can't say that somebody has passed. If I can't say that somebody's lost or passed or so some of these traditional ways of expressing that somebody is no longer in this world, they have died. It's a scientific mm-hmm. fact. They are now dead. Mm-hmm. How do I explain it in a way that's empathetic to others, but also honors the way that you know I, I feel about death? Do you have a suggestion? Mm, that is a really, really good question. And that when we talk about death literacy too, it's like, how do we talk about it? What's the vocabulary? Is there some lexicon that we can fall back on? Um, and the words, right? Grasping at words. Um, I, you know, my grandmother is now dead or all of my grandparents are dead. I just, I say that I, when I was born, three of my uh, four grandparents were dead and I had one, my maternal grandmother who was living and she died about five years ago now. No, six years ago now. And so I, I like to challenge myself to use that word all the time. And not in a way that um, maybe feels accosting or arresting to some folks because the word itself will. So I am comfortable enough saying the word that I don't have to spit it out and feel uncomfortable and, and throw it away from me. I've gotten to a point where dead, dying, death, saying it and seeing what comes up for me to a point that it doesn't hold uh, an emotional charge in the same way, where now I can offer that as a word and then whatever response or reaction that elicits from somebody else, I can hold space 
for that to happen. Um, cause I'm not, um, I'm not suggesting that it's tragic, nor am I suggesting that it's completely frivolous. There is a, there's a weight and a gravity to it without it having to be this like burden that, that holds us all, um, that holds us all down and captive. So using the words rather than um, using the euphemisms, I think is just a, a really respectful way to say dying happens. People die. Dinosaurs died. Dogs will die. And recognizing that it's a really tender place for a lot of people. There's a lot of emotion. Grief is something that I think we keep at bay with a lot of our addictions, with our busyness, with our doing rather than being essence. Um, so saying the words and one, uh, one sentence that I've found a lot of comfort um, and solace in and holding both what I feel about death and dying and still holding that empathetic place for other people is when learning that somebody has died in somebody else's life without making any assumptions. Um, this is a line that I learned from uh, Stephen Jenkinson. My heartfelt condolences on the death of blank. Hmm. So rather than saying, I'm sorry for your loss or whatever it is, if somebody is feeling loss, that still acknowledges, that sentence, I think, still acknowledges that and still holds a space of tenderness and softness and support in the my heartfelt condolences and then it doesn't do all of us the disservice of skirting around the issue yeah where it, it names what happened and then it names the person that died um and and imbues that honor and that recognition and that acknowledgement so if if the person's name were to be bob let's say my heartfelt condolences on the death of Bob or on, on Bob's death, not passing away, um, et cetera. Or if it's somebody that's identified by role, like this was my mentor, this was my grandfather. Um, if somebody's sharing either in person, on social media, that for me has been like a life raft. Again, I find it really funny whenever I say life. Yeah, that does that help a little bit or answer the question in terms of the the words and the vocabulary? It does. And I'm wondering you've mentioned death literacy at least twice, maybe three times. This seems to be some of the language that you're using in the lexicon that you have in your head. I've never heard anybody talk about death literacy. I've also heard never heard anyone except for you talk about becoming a death doula or a death midwife. I know you don't have active plans for doing that. Um, but all these things that surround it, you, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have a conversation with you. You have a different perspective. You have a different language around it. So some of the things that you're talking about, are these intermediate death literacy skills? Do we need to take it back to even the basics more, the fundamentals where there's just a one or two or maybe even three things that you can stack upon each other to have some basic death literacy. How do you even decide what goes into um, somebody becoming death literate? That's a great question. I think just like any other... Is that too big? That that could be a really uh, big question. Well, any of these questions could be too big. <laughs> You're recognizing that I, if you give me a wide open pen, I will gazelle around it. So yes. please, please do. <laughs> Hop to it. 
Um, so as far as deaf literacy is concerned, I think just like any other uh, body of knowledge and literacy, you start from kind of the primary and then intermediate into higher level, um, just like financial literacy or you know, body literacy or whatever else um, there is, we're usually pretty well practiced in the alphabet and then reading and then um, getting into more abstract works. And I would say that it's the same for death and dying. Um, first of all, know that it is a thing, that it happens, um, acknowledge it, recognize it, um, and not to turn away from it or to shy away from it when it's happening in small ways in life. Um, I think sometimes uh, the death of a person, of a family member, of a community member, of somebody that's very dear to us might feel like an Everest. So what's, uh, for the West Coasters out there, they'll understand this, what's a grouse grind or what's, um, which is a a pretty challenging hike um, in North Vancouver in British Columbia. Um, or what's like a, a jog around the block before we get to Everest? Like, let's just get our bodies moving. And one of them is looking at the different ways that the concepts of death play out in our lives on a regular basis. Um, so I talk about identity death a lot. Um, and that's what happens anytime there's a transition in our lives. And we go from primarily wearing a student hat to now being a, a person who is maybe working nine to five or being employed in some way and that identity death of i um i am a student this is my life i i go to this place or this institution these are the things and activities that i'm involved in and when life takes a transition whether it's chosen or not um whether it's a quote good transition or a quote bad transition life's um lives being introduced into our um, our lived paths through birth, through a friend introducing our, uh, us to somebody new, or um, a death happening, or getting married. Um, then it's the death of me as a single person, or me as a fiancé, or me as somebody in partnership. And it's now the birth of me as a husband or wife in a traditional monogamous relationship. Um, where there's marriage there and it's when somebody then has a child for the first time then it's the death of knowing myself as the only or the primary maybe person in my story like now there's somebody else that I care for deeply and so all of these any transition I, I offer in our lives allow us an opportunity to practice this idea of how do I deal with death, with the loss of something, with the gain of something, and that whole process that requires a little bit of grieving and then integrating and then moving into something new. If we're able to practice those skills in a small format, it's kind of like baby steps until you get to the big thing. So you'd mentioned the teddy bear headstand um, at one point and that for me, um, for folks that don't know what a teddy bear headstand is, it's if you imagine your head on the ground and your two hands, your right and your left, making a triangle with your head and your two hands on the ground. So you're making a tripod with the top half of your body. And then you flip yourself over so your butt's in the air. And then you get your knees 
onto your elbows. So your elbows are at a 90 degree angle. You're making this platform and you're basically kind of climbing onto yourself like a jungle gym. And you end up with from your head to your tailbone, straight up and down, um, perpendicular to the floor. And then your knees are on your elbows and you're making a little tripod stand. And that's a, a pri- well, kind of advanced inversion to get to the showy uh, headstand. Hmm. So it's if we practice these little skills, do we eventually get more comfortable with the essence and the concepts of them so that when we need to do the full-blown expression of that same essence, so teddy bear headstand to full-on headstand, maybe leading to handstands, so now you've got two points of contact instead of three, if we practice death in tiny ways and dealing with uncomfortable situations and having clumsy conversations, uh, naming our feelings, I think these are all the competencies that build up death literacy, just like having arithmetic competency and vocabulary competency can lead somebody eventually if they want to uh, writing a thesis in their PhD. How'd I do? And the prancing and gazelling. Yes, the mental imagery is vibrant in my head, and uh, the prancing was successful without uh, without going too far outside of. Not that I'm here to set bounds or anything. I, yes, you did quite well, as I expected you to. I just so many so many things, so many things. This is perhaps <laughs> one of my most challenging conversations in the best way possible, and that. If you and I had the time and people listening had the patience and the attention for it, I would love to just have this go on for four hours and just have this be an epic, like my most epic conversation that I just so happened to have recorded and put up on the internet. Uh, but of course, there could be part two and there could be part three. I, I, there's a lot of other things um, that we could talk about that I thought, hey, maybe we'll talk about these things. You mentioned your spreadsheet, your money tracking spreadsheet and how you do that and how I'm not going to see it because it's color coded, but that's interesting in itself. You describe yourself. For folks that I'm happy to share. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got parallels between your what you call your Swiss cheese memory and what I refer to oh, as yeah. my leaky brain in my book, Experience Curating. Uh, and mm-hmm. one, one of the reasons why you put so much into Google, your calendar, because you can't trust your own brain, you put it external to you. Uh, curation mm-hmm. and yoga and teddy bear handstands, letting go and surrender. <sighs> okay, I'm just, we're, uh, one more, I got one more big one for you. Um, okay. And we'll explore all the other things that I'm just tempted to get into, but we, we can right now. <laughs> I Let's see, how do I frame this? A few months ago, I was at a Live Your Legend local gathering here in the Twin Cities, and some of my favorite people locally show up to these gatherings. Um, One of them, a woman named Lynn, who was also our venue host, we were just having a conversation. I don't even know what it was about. It certainly wasn't a a curious conversation around death and dying. It would not have got that hashtag. But she just very casually mentioned in response to somebody, she's like, life is long. And it struck me at that point, I've never heard somebody say that before. Everybody always says, it's so cliche, life is short. Like, mm-hmm. go get them. Like, life is short. You, you got to you gotta grab them by the horns and all these other things that, we, that I've heard. And when Lynn said life is long, I thought, yes. Yes, it is, Lynn. And I know for some people, life is short is literally true. There are so many people who die before they're ready, 
who die before others who are around them are ready to have them die. But the way that I think about it in general is that life is long. Would you recommend that people try to shift their view from life is short to life is long? Mm, That's so juicy. Um, Thank you to Lynn for passing that on to all of us through you. Would I recommend that perspective and outlook on life? Based on my personal experience, that's a hell yes. Anything I think that creates those constraints that feel I think there's a difference between having a healthy boundary that feels contained and safe and then having that kind of, oh, the boa constrictor is kind of getting a little tight on me. Um, And I think that life is short uh, phrase that's thrown out so often is done with so many different intentions. And in one way, it's it's meant, I think, to, to motivate, right? It's like, don't kind of waste your days away and and do something that doesn't engage you or add value to you or other people that are around in your life. It, it always, for me, goes back to that question of, are we in a place of balance and enough in that conversation? Because if that starts to provoke anxiety, like, oh my gosh, life is short. I don't know when I'm going to go. Do I have five more days or do I have five or 10 or 50 more years? I got to do all the things now. Um, I alluded to this before not alluded, I, I said it before, um, I, I function with a uh, spectrum of mild to medium high-ish anxiety. And um, I know other folks that, that are challenged with their mental health with uh, debilitating levels of anxiety or depression and things like that. And, and that life is short, make the most of it can feel like a weapon to some people. And can provoke more anxiety rather than galvanizing some sort of like energy or excitement or motivation. Mm-hmm. And for me, taking that long view on things and being very clear that what I'm doing right now is enough. This is exactly where I need to be. I have no idea where this path will unfold and take me. Being able to relax into that kind of letting go and surrender, I, I waver on and off from this sometimes I'm much better than others um, at being able to do that but when I have that life is long perspective I just sigh in a very like my body lets go of the tension I'm a little more relaxed and from that place of relaxation I tend to be able to make better decisions I make more creative choices. Maybe I, I'm able to take on a little bit more risk and that ends up having a little bit more reward or it was you know, a pretty ungraceful fall out of that teddy bear headstand. But being able to have that space of life is long, it just kind of opens up the space of, so play around in it a little bit. And you don't have to do everything. Uh, I'm going to quote Eminem on this. You only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to... And it's that whole idea of you either do it now or never again. And does that feel like there's too much, um, too much at stake, which then for me provokes a lot of anxiety, perfectionism, a lot of those habits that don't quite serve anymore. And being able to let that breathe a little bit more and give it a little bit more space that life as long super resonates for me. Mm. 
Good. So, yes. I would like people to consider that uh, not that they necessarily abandon life is short, but maybe every once in a while it's appropriate. It feels like life is long. And if it doesn't sound like it works for you, great. But um, it's fun to hear you riff on that. And to quote Eminem, too. I drop a lot of music references in uh, my podcast episodes, but I don't believe I've ever dropped Eminem. That's a good song. I uh, I want to make sure that we have an opportunity. There probably will be less Eminem and more Disney bird songs being tweeted okay. by you in the type form, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. There is one other thing that we discussed before uh, recording this chat. You mentioned that um, listeners of the show, they had an open invitation to reach out to you about something they would find useful as a resource or a tool. Maybe you could create it for them, something that resonates with the quorum. Also, some chats that you were willing to have up to a certain number. Do you want to just explore yep. or explain that a little bit more? Absolutely. The first is an offer to, it's my attempt to deeply listen in the forum called Twitter. So if anybody um, in the show notes, you mentioned that you'd, you'd link the type form. I'm happy to share the, um, the simple budget um, spreadsheet that I have. And it's just a different way to um, conceptualize money. Um, I've had a, a very and interesting relationship with my money story and mindset around finances. Um, I'd mentioned uh, coming from a welfare background and, and coming from a place of scarcity and how to re-engage with something that was once fearful and now feels like, okay, let's let's play with this in a different way. And I think that's where the, the death and dying piece also came into play. Um, so if there is, for any of you out there listening to this podcast, if of any of these things, especially around that death literacy piece, is there something that you would find helpful? A dictionary of words, um, a little um, curated list of resources of like, okay, never have thought about this before. Um, here's what I would, I'd like a few videos or books or something. Um, if there is something that really feels like from all of these philosophical conversations, Here's a really tangible toolkit or a worksheet or something that I would like to have. Um, tweet at me. It's at Humaira Hamid. Um, let me know what that is. And if I hear enough of or see patterns of a similar thing, then I'll create it. My gift, um, just because I'm curious what folks need and is there a way that from what I've learned and known, um, can I whip something up that's quick, useful, easy that you can engage in and then walk away feeling like, okay, I feel a little bit more grounded in this. I get it a little bit more. Um, I feel a bit more empowered, a bit more equipped. So that's the first offer. And then the second offer is I am so curious, uh, Joel, specifically for folks that tune into this podcast, one of the things is kind of find your flock connect with the people that are maybe resonant, maybe dissonant, mm -hmm. um, and get into really cool conversations with people. So I'm offering 30-minute um, chats for the first eight people um, that would like to take me up on this. Again, tweet at me and let me know. Um, I'd like to be one of the eight. And the first eight um, requests that I get I'll reach out to um, those folks, folks specifically and find a, a mutual time. And we'll just sit and chat for 30 minutes about whatever. Um, if you have a specific topic that you'd like to chat about, let me know. 
and we'll do that. Otherwise, we'll we'll kind of have the conversations that my friend Joel and I have been having, <laughs> which kind of touch on everything. Yeah. Um, but it's just an offer to like connect human to human. Well, that's really generous. And for if for whatever reason you don't get enough people to take you up on that offer, just allocate all the leftover time back to me, if you would, please. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, knowing your gazelle-like nature, this is a dangerous question to ask, but it's a question that I always enjoy asking at the end of conversations like this. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? I think that it's all going to be okay, guys, and gals and folks out there. Whatever Whatever feels like it's not going to be okay, I tend to kind of flip back and forth between this canine spirit, unbridled enthusiasm, optimistic-ness, this nurturing grandmother spirit that I've been told I have, and a bit of a pessimist. And sometimes the pessimist in me wins out, especially if there are environmental or social, um, political cues around that make me feel that way a little bit more or draw my attention to that. Um, But one of One of the things that I've learned to be true through my own lived experience is what you focus on expands. And it's not to say that the other things do not exist. It's just, again, drawing from my my experience of managing anxiety. It's if I focus on the things that are not going right or that are wrong with the world, etc., that I'm not doing enough of in my life, it tends to kind of woolly mammoth take over. Um, and if I focus on what's good, so I know we've heard it a lot from many, many different people, but holding a simple practice like um, gratitude journals or prayers or whatever it is, whatever speaks to each individual person, find some practice that feels true for you. Um, and, and without becoming kind of la la everything's good with the world when there is that whole experience of grief and suffering and pain and learning and discomfort um but also focus on the teacup pigs running around in the fields and things like that and (laughs) and know that there, there is it's okay to have lightness and joy um i always look at the at the dichotomies and spectrums and usually the lightest of the light calls in the darkest of the dark and vice versa. Yeah. Have a, have a practice of holding both. One note that I have to myself is expand your capacity to hold dissonance. So can I move past either or and go to both and, and that's what I would offer is shift towards both and great. Well, you'll be offering a lot more in the future. And if you want people to find you, I know you are around and out about a lot in the greater Vancouver area. What about online? Mm-hmm. Uh, where would you want people to connect with you online besides Twitter, which I'll link to in the show notes and some other places? Do you have a, a home online? Uh, I have my uh, Um is kind of the aggregate page where it links to my blog. It links to my Pinterest, it links to, so depending on what platform you enjoy, um, you'll be able to find the nodes of that around there um, and more of just kind of some of the work and things that I do in different channels to get a hold of me. So I'm happy to hear from folks through 
whatever medium actually works best for them. Um, so get at me in whatever way feels true. Right on. Well, mm-hmm. thank you, Humaira. This has been uh, a gift and a heck of a journey in conversation. There will be a round two if you're open to it. I'm not sure when. Woo! I'm excited. And, and I'm and I'm looking forward, Joel, to your uh, your Disney bird whistling request. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. So whatever your what I offer is whatever your favorite song is, rock yeah. and roll, jazz, hip hop, and R and B, old school. It's yeah. going to be a Disney song. It's going to be a whole new world from Aladdin, and I want to hear <laughs> the bird version of a Disney song in a Disney bird voice. That's going to be incredible. There will be, uh, I'll just warn people, there will be an Easter egg version if Humaira is okay with me doing it. Some future podcast episode after you think it's all done. No, it's not all done. There's going to be a little bonus for people. Yeah, we'll make that happen. Sounds great. All right. How are you feeling after that conversation? I know I ask that question sometimes, but how are you feeling after that conversation? Disoriented, stunned, invigorated like I'm feeling, ready to, say, have a curious conversation on death and dying? Ah, man, you can find uh, all the links to all the stuff that we talk about, so many good things, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more niftiness in the show notes at joelzeslovsky.com slash sasm114. That also includes links to Humira's offer to take your song request and whistle it like Disney birds might, her value-based personal budget spreadsheet template, and the chance to have a free one-on-one 30-minute conversation with her about anything you like. As a whistler, you may also guess she is a tweeter, and you can connect with her directly at her Twitter handle, H-U-M-A-I-R-A, H-A-M-I-D, Humaira Hamid. Link to in the show notes, of course, if you don't want to type that in. Uh, You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. It's also an easy place to become a podcast subscriber, uh, get on the email newsletter that I send out periodically, leave a brief iTunes review, whatever you want. Uh, it's all at joelzaslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-114. Now, would you like me to have another curious conversation with Humaira about death and dying? Because I certainly do, and I want you to tell me how you feel about that. Uh, maybe you would like me to stop, actually, my ever-increasing time spent talking about the big Ds, death and dying. Or uh, if you think this is a good thing, we can keep a good thing going by inviting another person who would love to talk about the end. This is the end, my only friend, the end. Let me know what's up in a handful of ways. You can always get at me with joelzeslowski.com slash contact. Well, I believe that's enough for one episode. Uh, If you have noticed, the trend seems to be a slowly increasing depth and length to the show, and I hope you dig it as much as I enjoy facilitating it. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zeslovsky. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.